The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner with a Master's Degree in Financial Analysis. The show is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning techniques, the likes of which we hope will help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. Today in the studio with me is my co-host Ethan Broga. Good afternoon, Ethan, and Happy New Year. Hey, Ken. Happy New Year. It's good to see you in the new year. Good to be here. Looking good. Got the beer, beard uh, freshly trimmed. Beer? You guys are passing out beers. And uh, your hair's quaffed. <laughs> if you want one, I, I'm sure we could get a hold of one for you. Fair enough. And today we have a special guest, uh, Lauren Enquest, who is a certified public accountant with a master's degree in taxation. And he is joining us, Ethan, at least for the first segment if you can convince him, maybe even longer, to talk a little bit about uh, what happened with the over the over the New Year holiday with the Congress uh, passing the um, fiscal cliff issues, the legislation on the tax. We've got some information about that and how it will affect your planning for 2013. So I thought we could start with Lauren. Good afternoon, Lauren. Uh, good afternoon. Happy New Year. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Start with Lauren and uh, and see where that takes us, Ethan. I think it sounds great. What do you think? Let's do it. Well, before we do, why don't you go ahead and give out our contact information? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Why not? Hey, and just a reminder, this is a live show, so feel free to jump in today if you'd like to join the program. It's can... hard to tell because we're so polished. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you can reach us via email at contact at empiradio.com. And uh, Simon will probably filter that for us and pass along. And then uh, via phone at 866-472-5790. Just trying something new for the uh, the new year, I thought. That sounds pretty good. And so if you have any questions about the tax situation while we have, Lauren, do please do shoot an email. If you're sitting at your desk working, um, again, like if you're like most of our employees, you're probably Facebooking or Whatever it is you like to do, um, scheduling your vacation plans. I thought that was a blocked website. I didn't realize that we could do that. No, no, it's totally, um, it's totally out there. So once again, um, oh, you know, I forgot to plug in my little thing, Sam. Um, so sorry about that. Uh, do 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 send that email contact at empiradio.com and we'll we'll try to answer it or see if Lauren can answer it while we're while we're doing our business here. So Lauren, you you put up a blog um, on our website and you can just go to empirical.net to see that. 
And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to go to that real quick, Lauren. We'll, we'll start this uh, to talk about the tax, um, the the tax ramifications of. Sorry, I'm looking at this. So, tax consequences of the fiscal cliff deal, and um, I've got the full paper here from the Journal of Accountancy that you referenced. But the key things, let's start with the big stuff. Uh, what's going on with individual tax rates? Well, they basically kept the rates the same, except they threw in a 39.6% rate for those single individuals making 400000 and uh, joint taxpayers making over 450000 hmm. okay. So they kept everything the same, except they threw in a, a new top bracket, which was the old, uh, the old top bracket uh, under the Clinton administration. So we just reverted basically back to that, the old top bracket, which is 39.6. But it starts at a much higher income level. Okay. Where did it start back then? Uh, it would have been would have been in the general uh, where the 35% bracket is now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what about capital gains and dividends? What's going on with that? Sure. Well, you know, there was a lot of speculation on what was going to happen with those with those rates, uh, but what, again, they kept them the same, except for those that fall into the $400,000 and $450,000 of income at those levels. Now they have to pay 20% on their capital gains and their dividend income. Um, the rest of us pay at the 15% rate or even the 10% or the 0% still exist. So with with both of these, the individual tax rates, uh, Lauren, this is Ethan, by the way. Hi, Ethan. Identify sure. yourself. <laughs> and the capital gains and, and qualified dividends. Um, so are these going to sunset at some time, like the other laws did, to get us in this kind of mess in the last uh, year or so? Uh, right now they're set. They're so permanent. They're permanent as far as as far as, the, as far as that goes. <laughs> so that's, that's a lot better than having things kind of reset or sunset uh, and so forth and so on. I think that's at least provides some, some certainty. It will take an act of Congress to make things change in the future, which I think is good. Sure. So this, you mean the, the, the 20% de- the capital gain on the higher income and the 39% bracket, Those you're saying there's no, there is no expiration of that. No sunset. Now. So right. the, the other tax brackets along with that now are, are set. Right. Okay. Yep. And do they also, I think, I think I heard something about those adjusting for inflation, at least on the, the income tax. The, or is that something different? The well, the income uh, in terms of actual dollars, nominal dollars, get adjusted for inflation. Is that typical, Lauren? That's typical. Yes. Okay. Um, so, so we're four hundred fifty thousand for joint filers is the threshold to hit the thirty nine percent bracket. That'll that'll generally get inf- uh, raised with, w- lifted with inflation. Is that how that works? I presume it will. Okay, well, let's not presume too much, but um, <laughs> but that that would be a reasonable thing. Yes. yes. Okay. Indeed. Uh, one of the things that will be adjusted for inflation that hasn't in the past is the AMT uh, amount. So every year we're battling for for them to raise the AMT um, exemption amounts. And now they have permanently put in place um, an index for inflation for those amounts. And so we sh- should avoid any uh, avalanche of, of taxpayers falling into AMT in any, any given year. 
Oh, that's good news. And then the one other thing that they added. There's more? There's more. There's and this is more. not a good thing. Oh. It's the phase out. They added a, they added back. It used to be around uh, about eight years ago. Um, and slowly phased out the phase out. But, uh, um, and now they brought that back to limit itemized deductions for oh. those making uh, single taxpayers making $250,000 or joint taxpayers making over $300,000. Uh, so about eight years ago how it worked is you would could lose up to 80% of your itemized deductions. Um, that's That was the capper. They didn't let you lose more than that out that's, of their genero- generosity. That's nice of them. Um, but it, basically it's... Uh, the amount over the threshold. So a joint taxpayer has $300,000 threshold. If your income uh, was $350,000, then you would have $50,000 above the threshold, which Uh would be multiplied by 3% at least eight years ago. I haven't seen the details of how they're going to calculate it now, but uh, um, it would be 3%, and that would be about $1,500 uh, you would lose your deductions in this example, but uh, so so uh, I'm sorry. Let me make sure. I, I like to use these round numbers. If you had four a couple with four hundred thousand dollars of income, fifty thousand dollars in itemized deductions, um, their income would exceed the three hundred threshold, right, by a hundred thousand. Yes. Their allowed deductions would be reduced then by three thousand dollars. Which is the three percent of the hundred thousand they're over, right? Yeah, and that's these are the numbers they they used to be in place. So I'm assuming that they're going to be they could be those again. I have not seen all the details of, of how the phase out is going to be. Okay, uh, well that's what they have. Okay, okay. Um, according to the IRS statistics that I pulled up, that um, so in this case that would leave them with instead of fifty thousand forty seven thousand of uh, deductions, which would Theoretically, boost their tax bill maybe by, say, a thousand dollars. Sure. So there's a difference. Okay. Um, go ahead. What else were you going to say? Um, well, that's so. Those are the big items um, that are, you know, could affect the most people. Well, the um, so let me give you a couple more. The sales. You mentioned on the blog here the uh, sales tax deduction. Did you already talk about that? I did not. Uh, Us Washingtonians have have come to love that sales tax deduction. Um, So they have decided to keep that for another two years, but that could be um, sunset. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's plans to, so hopefully they'll, they'll keep it going. But it's going through 2013 um, as it is right now. Don't, don't. Don't states who have uh, state income tax, isn't that a deduction for, um, for federal purposes? So like California has a state, don't they get to deduct that? They do, and that's why... It makes uh, sense that the states that don't have an income tax deduction, or don't have income tax, period, would be able to deduct sales tax. Then. No, exactly. I mean, how it's set up right now is you can deduct what you want to deduct. If, if your um, sales tax is greater than your income tax for the state, then you can deduct the sales tax. If, if you're... Uh, um, income tax for the state is greater than your sales tax. You can deduct, deduct that. So you can choose. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's been deductible for for forever. Right. Right. Okay. So let me jump into just a few more questions here, Lauren. About um, 
some of the other things that are going on. It says one of the, uh, in that Journal of Accountancy article you reference, yes. it uh, says one of the items not addressed by the Act was the temporary uh, lowering, the temporary lower rate uh, for the employee's portion of Social Security payroll tax. It was 4.2%, and now it's not been expected extended and has reverted to 6.2, right? Yes. And uh, the the um, other thing I wanted to ask you about was re- relating to the investment income and the, the tax on that. Um, so on uh, Medicare tax on investment income starting January 1st, Section 1411 imposes a tax on individuals equal to 3.8% of the lesser of the individual's net investment income for the year or the amount of the individual's modified adjusted gross income exceeds a threshold amount. Uh, for married individuals filing a joint return, the threshold amount is $250,000. So could you just walk us through what sure. what, what does it all mean? <laughs> well, I guess... The starting point is if, you're, if your AGI is under 250000 as a joint couple, then there's nothing to worry about. No matter what your um, investment income, if your AGI is less than 250, then it doesn't apply to you. Now, if you're over 250, uh, you have to look at how much you're over 250. So let's say you're at 300000 Your AGI is at 300000 um, Now, you're over 50, 250 by 50000 and your investment income is only 20000 Well, that is the amount. The 20000 is the lesser of the amount over, over the threshold or your investment income. Investment income of 20000 that amount is taxed by the 3.8%. Now, another example, if your investment income is 100000 and your AGI is still 300000 then you're only taxed on the amount over the 250, so in this case, 300,000 minus the 250 is 50,000. So even though you have investment income of 100,000, you're only going to pay tax on the 50,000 that you're above the threshold. Okay. And so I, I, there's a couple things. One, uh, capital gains are included in investment income and dividends, and so for someone in that high bracket now, that new high bracket, they're not only paying 20 percent. But they could theoretically be paying 23.8% um, when they, last year they were just paying 15%. So that's that's a much bigger increase than it looks initially. Hmm. Um, another thing would be to, um, I think it adds value to now non-deductible IRA contributions just to, to keep that investment from generating income that's going to be taxed an additional 3.8%. Um, yeah, to just to try to avoid that extra tax. Um, okay, it looks like they're part of the new taxes are additional hospital insurance tax on high high income taxpayers. The employee portion of the hospital insurance part of FICA, normally one point four five percent of covered wages, is increased by nine tenths of a percent on wages that inc- that exceed a threshold amount. The additional tax imposed on combined wages of both the taxpayer and the taxpayer spouse. In the case of a joint return, the threshold amount is $250,000 in the case of a joint return. And I'm just kind of keeping it simple and focusing on the joint return. Um, 
So that's an additional tax, it sounds like. Yes. Okay. You know, one one thing that was put in there that, that hasn't got as much press as these tax rates, etc., has been the 401k, a traditional 401k starting 2013 can be converted to a Roth 401k, assuming your company, your employer, has Roth 401ks available. Um, that was put in to raise some short-term short-term uh, tax revenue because when you do convert, you owe tax revenue on that on that amount. But it could create some interesting planning opportunities uh, for the for the right individuals. So, d- is there any effect on if you have IRAs outside of your uh, 401k account? Does that matter at all, or is it? So you, it's just the, explain to me why. I mean, right now you've been doing conversions. We've been doing them right from IRAs to to Roths, but you couldn't do it directly from a 401k before. Is that what's unique here? Correct. You'd have to roll it out first. So you'd have to terminate employment. Yeah, unless the plan allowed for an in-service withdrawal, which is pretty rare. Okay, so that's what's special. Is if someone had most of their their assets in the 401k in IRA form, they were kind of stuck in terms of converting it. Exactly. They're basically right. They couldn't really effectively do that easily. And now they can manage that as part of um, their conversion process or the planning around that. Is sure. that the benefit of this? Yep. And um, so if, if uh, and uh, we've got a few minutes here, Lauren, and maybe if we go too far, we'll, you can extend this into the next section. But I, while I have you in here, because I know we get a lot of sometimes crazy questions from listeners, and we did receive, uh, and I don't mean crazy like they're crazy, but they're just kind of out there sometimes. These things are out on uh, on the internet. And uh, we did receive a question, I believe, about the confiscation of uh, IRA assets and the likelihood that, you know, there's rumors floating around on the internet that... Uh, that maybe part of the tax, part of the government strategy would be to confiscate ours. Do you want to comment on that? I, I know you found it. Well, you did some research. Yeah, I mean, a few years ago, they there was there was a proposal to create a, a government-sponsored retirement plan where you would take your 401k holdings, etc., and, and change them in to trade them in for credits on this U.S. sponsored plan. Um, some of the headlines for spinning it in a negative tone were the confiscation. Uh, uh, <laughs> the confiscation of your retirement assets. Sure. And so, um, which was not truly the, the idea, um, but even then, of course, people jumped on that as far as there was a... a a uh, gold seller who was was I guess somebody selling pre- the precious metal of gold. Yes, you mean? Okay. yes, and wanted basically you to tra- Can, get out of your IRAs and get out of your four hundred one ks and buy their their gold. So they were using that you know headline as a um, as a scare tactic. Okay, that seems Mark. dirty. No, very dirty. It is well, dirty. I've I've heard a lot of those, and um, I know we're gonna have to take a break. Can you stick around? Yes, I segment can. here. I have a few more tax question, tax related questions 
for you when we get back from the break. And uh, uh, so let's go ahead and do that. And uh, when we come back on Empirical Investing Radio, we'll continue our discussion about tax planning in 2003 and the uh, fiscal cliff deal and what effects are enacted. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at EMPIRadio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. We are back at Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host, uh, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith, and our guest today, Lauren Enquist, uh, CPA extraordinaire. And we're just reviewing some of the tax highlights from the uh, recent bill that was signed by uh, the folks in D.C., and uh, we've highlighted some of the changes in capital gains tax that remain permanent, some extensions of... Uh, the income brackets for the highest uh, income tax brackets, and uh, I think we have a couple other things to kind of go on here, guys. Should we continue on this this course? I would like to. I have some questions, and uh, that'd be fantastic. That would be <laughs> that would be fantastic. That would be fantastic. All right. Uh, yeah. So um, I know you want to talk about the state tax implications, right, Ethan? Yeah, that was one thing that I thought was pretty nice. Uh, you know, again, these things are, were made permanent, which is, I mean, again, it takes an act of Congress to get things changed, which is pretty hard to do. So. Permanent sounds pretty good relative to sunsetting, in my view, anyway. This, the estate and gift tax exclusion amount is retained at $5 million. Right, so that was made permanent. So so uh, that's pretty exciting news, I think, for, for most people who, at least, were dealing with that issue anyway. Mm-hmm. Because was the, as far as the estate planning, were people worried that that might get reduced down to something in the $3 million range? Or? Well, it was due to go back to a million, right, Lauren? $1 million. So yeah. $1 million, okay. Without any... Without anything else uh, done, which so a, that is huge. It's a huge deal, yeah, yeah, and that's made permanent as well. And they also uh, kept this this idea of the portability portability election. Explain that to us, because so, I think this is important to understand. Yeah, in the past, uh, in the past, uh, the um, the personal exemption that you got was just per person, and if you didn't use it, even though you're married, you just lost it. So if I was married, and let's say the uh, exemption amount was a million dollars, well, I have one, and my spouse has one. So if I die. But I don't choose to use it. 
well, my spouse doesn't get to get the my million dollar exemption, so she only still gets the million dollars. So, in other words, you had to set up these AB trust situations to actually take advantage of the situation in advance of you passing away. And the, when you refer to exemption for people who haven't listened to us for a long time, uh, what you mean is the amount that can be excluded from the value of your estate is for tax purposes. Yeah, you, in the old days, you get you can give um, uh, on your death give up to a million dollars uh, of your assets away and pay no estate tax. That's okay. the, that's the exemption amount it used to be. And just last year it was just over five million dollars in 2012. Um, so that was a one-time thing that was due to sunset, you know, go away at the beginning of 2013, and it was going to revert back to the pre-Bush era tax cut rules, which was one million dollars. But part of this legislation made that made it effectively five million dollars uh, per person, or because of the, this guaranteed portability, it's ten ten million dollars per couple. So you know, that was the key before you had to make sure that you did the appropriate planning in advance in order to, to take optimize both. Both spouses' exemptions. Otherwise, exactly you could right. potentially lose. Yeah. It if you had five million each. Now that's that ten million dollars, a little over five million. Um, but if you missed it or you didn't properly address it when the first spouse passed away, um, instead of a ten million dollar exclusion, you would have five. Yeah. And five is 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 much nicer than one. Sure. And, you know, an example would be if you have, uh, let's say you have an estate that's $2 million bucks, and that we're talking about the, the old tax rules before um, the Bush era tax cuts were in effect, where the exemption amounts was just $1 million. Let's say I, I, I married, I, we have total assets of $2 million. I die, and I didn't use this A-B trust situation, so I didn't give anything to, a, to, a, to an A trust. That would then, upon my wife's death, would not be included in her estate. Okay. So I just pass away, and all my assets go to her. Which is how it will default to anyway. Kind of the default, right? Yeah, that is the default. Okay. Um, but what would happen in that case upon my wife's death, because the exemption is only one million bucks, a million bucks of her state then will be taxed at the federal uh, state tax level. So this portability issue allows you to not do anything, but then later get the full bingo, uh, ten million dollars. That's is that right. Correct. That's exactly. You right. leave everything to your to in your case your wife. Yep. And later. When she passed away, she could claim a full ten million. Exactly, any any, um, any portion that was unused by me. Okay, which is pretty neat. So would that apply then? If let's say that the investments grew after you had passed away to be in excess of the yeah. first five million, it would apply. It would apply. Is that right? That's right. And also, it sounds like this adjusts for inflation too, which is which is kind of nice. So it provides some real certainty. Where for many many years, it's been a lot of uncertainty. The only the only negative of uh, this was they increased the top rate from thirty five percent to forty percent on the estate tax. Yep, basically right. So above ten million bucks, um, you'd you'd have a situation where you're paying forty percent estate tax. That's correct. Okay. A couple other questions. So we were talking about. Oh, go ahead. I do have one more thing on yeah. that. This doesn't affect state a state estate tax. So they're not they're not good point. they're not combined at all. You you know about that right? Obviously, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but currently in Washington State, the uh, exemption amounts it's it's two million dollars per person, and it's not there is no portability to it. So you could have a situation where you where you avoid the federal tax, obviously because the exemptions are very high, but but it's not tied to the state estate tax. So you could be subject to a state estate tax, you know, up to. Above the two million dollar mark, basically, is what that what that means. Do you know what the the top rate is on in Washington State, for example? I, I think it's nineteen percent. Okay, something like that. I think it goes. So from, it's pretty. Ju- that could be pretty juicy then. Yeah, I mean, especially if you have large states, right? I mean, if it's a 
ten thousand bucks, I don't know, it's something to worry about. But if you have well above, well in excess, the the state <laughs> exemption amount, then yeah, you want to probably do some planning around that. And that's where these these trusts would still come into effect uh, for for state estate tax purposes, trying to use their that exemption with these sort of AB trust situations. Okay. Well, definitely, if you're if you're in that range in each state, you may be listening. You'd want to check, right, what the state rules are. Yeah, uh, it's worth getting some financial planning around your estate. Sure, it is. Okay, you bet. So, what I was uh, any any other state or gift tax issues you want to talk about? Okay, we were talking about IRAs going into the break, Lauren, and while you're here, uh, I had asked you because I had gotten a question from another one of our many listeners and uh, that came through on the email and it was, hey, is there any amount of income that would disqualify a person from making a pre-tax uh, contribution to a 401k? So mm-hmm. so with any of the changes, because I don't see it in any of the write-up here, mm-hmm. um, is there any level of income that you make where they would currently start limiting your deductibility on a, for a pre-tax 401k? I think this is more important because if the top tax brackets are going up and all the other little taxes that they're in addition to the 39 point, um, the 39% tax, uh, highest 39.6% marginal tax bracket, the other taxes are tacking into this. They co- there's more, I would think, uh, decision making with regard to do I do a Roth, an after tax Roth contribution in my 401k? As most 401ks I'm seeing now have the Roth option within the plan. Um, but as tax rates are changing or tax are increasing, that makes that pre-tax contribution more valuable, mm-hmm. or at least gives you more pause for consideration there, right? Sure. Right. So there, is there anything in the hopper or any – should anyone be concerned about not being able to fully deduct a pre-tax you – know, if? Contribution on the four hundred one k side. Well, there was a lot of uh, a lot of concern going in what they were going to do with that if they were going to lower the amount that you're able to contribute to a four hundred one k. But uh, but along with the keeping the rates the same on the most part, uh, they they left that as is. So um, yeah, it, it it's much more valuable than it was um, just a few days ago <laughs> in two thousand twelve. That's something that I think everyone has to reevaluate and look at where they are and, and, and see if that that makes sense to, to contribute to pre-tax. And something I would offer, Ethan, is if you are looking, taking an opportunity to look at your 401k, I've had a few people already ask me that aren't clients of ours directly to look at their 401k and help them make those decisions um, should they be putting into a Roth versus the pre-tax. If they do, how much should they be contributing into their 401k? How do they make that decision based around their budget and the other investment options they have outside of the 401k? There's been a lot of press over the last few years about how poor some of the 401ks are that are being offered at various uh, in, in corporations. Um, and the biggest thing being lack of disclosure in terms of how the funds and the performance of the funds are doing, the high expenses of the mutual funds being utilized, um, the limited choices in some cases of the funds um, being forced to use underperforming what we would call traditional actively managed type of funds. 
there's a lot of that stuff going on, and I think it's getting better and better as that news is, has has been covered widely. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would be happy to offer, you know, Ethan, Lauren, or myself our service in helping you take a look at what you've got as a listener of the program and helping you to, to, to decipher what types of funds are viable um, and just how you should make it. It's such an important vehicle, particularly with the tax situation here. You want to make sure you're making the right decisions about it. Uh, looking through your plan to see what if your company is making any kind of a match is it a non-elective match, you know, like a safe harbor where they just have to make a particular match based on your income, or is there a match based on how much you put into the plan? So it's just important to make sure that you're not missing out on any of that, and that you understand what what those, how the matches are working, mm-hmm. um, among other things. So we're happy to take a look at that. I just wanted to throw that out there. All right, Lauren, a couple more quick uh, tax questions here. Um, and I mean, Ethan, did you mention another one? Um, I'm not sure. I, I, we just talked about the estate and gift. Oh, you were saying what you were thought was unique is that they kept in the capital gains. Oh, rules. yes, right. That's right. Just reiterate that for people in the lower income brackets right now. Yeah, this is particularly, I think, a very. I don't think a lot of people know about this. Um, in the last couple of years, because this was part of the, I think, the Bush era uh, tax cuts that they've, they've become known. Um, for 2010, actually, they had this one-time rule um, where people who were in the 15% tax bracket or lower that realized capital gains didn't pay any capital gains tax on the amount that kept them under the 15% tax bracket. That rule was extended. For, yeah, I know, pretty amazing. Um, that rule was extended for 2011 and 12, but it was due to go away going into 2013, like many other rules. Um, but in, t- in fact, what they've done, it didn't go away. It still exists, and it was made permanent as well. And this is a really unique type of thing because most people would say, well, I'm, I'm not in the 15% tax bracket. I'm not in the 10% tax bracket. Well, that may be true most of the time, but there will be times in your life that you are, uh-huh. invariably, particularly folks who are maybe near retirement, right? Uh, maybe they just retired and they have again, taxable assets along with their 401k assets that they've accumulated over the years. And in the year that the first couple of years early in retirement, before they take Social Security, before they have to take required minimum distributions, and maybe they haven't even declared getting a pension yet, they're going to be in a very low tax bracket during those 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 few periods of years there. And if they have capital gains to be realized up to the 15% bracket, boy, you should realize they realize those all day long because right. you can pay no tax. Yeah, you basically get a step up in tax, step up in basis along the way. So I've done this for several clients who are in that exact situation, who have assets, you know, maybe one, two, three million dollars, uh, but they they're in a situation where their income for that particular year is low, and that's when the opportunity here arises for a lot of folks, and I think it's pretty incredible. That's good stuff. Yeah. Okay, real quick here, Lauren, and um, just want to scroll through. Uh, the act also extends through 2013 and in some cases modifies a number of energy credits and provisions that expired at the end of 2011. Credit for energy efficient existing homes, credit for alternative fuel, vehicle refueling property, credit for two or three wheeled plug in electric vehicles, cellulose biofuel producer credit, incentives for biodiesel and renewable diesel, Production credit for Indian coal facilities placed in service, if you're thinking about that, Ethan. You know, I'm thinking about it. Before 2009. <laughs> uh, credits with respect to facilities producing energy from, okay, I don't know. Uh, credit for 
Credit for energy efficient new homes. So what are, these are tax credits. Long, can you explain what a credit is? Sure. For for some of these things here, you know. Well, credit is basically taking that amount off your tax bill. A deduction is taking that amount off your income to derive what your tax will be. So a credit's much more valuable. And these energy tax credits, um, though, there's still some out there, obviously. Uh, uh, three years ago, there were much more and, and much richer uh, just to, to try to give people incentives to, uh, to make environment-friendly purchases. Those have the, the, the juicy ones have, have, have passed, but there's still some here that are, are worth making sure that, uh, that you're, if you're eligible for them, to make sure you get credit for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Lauren. Thanks for sharing with all of this with us. And if you go to the website again, empirical.net, uh, Lauren's blog is there with the link to the summary of the uh, Fiscal Cliff Act uh, tax provisions from the Journal of Accountancy webpage. Yep, and a so, link right to the document as well. So. Yeah, right to the document. So I would encourage you to do that. And uh, any anything else, Lauren, in summary? Any other tax tidbits you want to share before we move uh, on to the review? No, I, I think just in general, it probably wasn't as uh, earth-shattering as a lot of people expected. I know there was a lot of panic at your end to, to either get estate, um, estates squared away or gifts made um, or income recognized in 2012, but, uh, but there are definitely some new things to keep your eye on. Okay, and uh, in uh, well, we have a minute here. Anything on what was the conclusion with the tax-free bonds, municipal bonds? Did you get any information on that? Well, they are not. I mean, if you're talking about the 3.8 percent, they're they're not included in that investment income. That's still excluded. Okay. Um, so um, they maybe are more valuable now than they were just a few days ago. So they're not um, disqualifying then the federal tax-free status of certain municipal municipal bond issues is that what we're saying those are still gonna they'll still be federally taxed yes okay i had i had thought, i don't see it here actually in this list and then i'm glad you brought that up i thought that they had capped it at 20 percent maximum benefit so above municipal income above the 20 percent tax bracket actually would be taxed because that's what you a couple a week or two ago right when you were saying hey this is what so I'm not sure if that is well, being contemplated. We'll have to look into that because I'm not positive. Will I you put I that, that in your tickler file, uh, Lauren? And the next week, um, let maybe, us know exactly if there's anything I, I about remember. that. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Lauren. Thank you. Um, so Ethan, we've just got about a minute here. Okay. And the next topics were, you know, the last segment I, I, we got. Um, I want to talk about five two nine plans. Just a little brief overview about them. When we come back, they have they have, are continuing to be a tax preferential mm-hmm. investment vehicle. Unless Lauren has heard anything about uh, them disqualifying or discontinuing the tax favorable tax treatment within a five two nine educational savings plan. I I really like these these types of plans, and so I want to talk a little bit when we've gotten when we get back. Uh, about an article in the Wall Street Journal, just overviewing some of the some of the difficulty getting good information, and then I want to share some of the work that our research director Eric has done for us 
to help you as our listener and our clients to sort through the best possible investment choices among the many, many plans that are, you know, each state can have one or more plans. Uh, so there's a lot of them out there, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about that when we get back, and then a quick recap of what happened across the market in 2012. And uh, if you want to give us a call or email us, you can call at 866-472-5790 or email contact at empiradio.com. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your host Ethan Broga. Alongside Ken Smith here. Again, if you'd like to join us today in the program, feel free to give us a call or email. We can be reached at contact at empiradio.com or 866-472-5790. That's 90. Ethan, before we move into this 529 discussion and, uh, and the market overview, I uh, wanted to comment, you know, we, we were encouraging listeners to go to fixthedebt.org. Um, and uh, sign the petition there to let let uh, Washington know that you want them to come up with a solution. And I got an email, and I was just kind of overviewing a statement from it's the Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson. Mm-hmm. I did the the uh, Simpson Bowles report, right? The commission, and they came up with several very valid and uh, logical solutions to help reduce the debt. And what they, what I just want to bring out in that is that they're saying, hey, just because we avoided the short-term consequences of, of going over the fiscal cliff in terms of the impact it would have on our economy, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't solve the debt problem. No, uh, yes. So the deal approved today is truly, and this was from the first, is when they put the statement out, is truly a missed opportunity to do something big to reduce our long-term fiscal problems. Um, it is a small step forward in our efforts to reduce the federal deficit. It follows on a $1 trillion reduction in spending, 
That was done in last year's Budget Control Act. While both steps advanced the efforts to put our fiscal house in order, neither one nor the combination of the two come close to solving our nation's debt and deficit problems. Our leaders must now have the courage to reform our tax code and entitlement programs such that we stabilize our debt and put it in a downward path as a percentage of the economy. Washington missed this magic moment to do something big to reduce the deficit and reform our tax code and fix our entitlement programs. We have all known for over a year that this fiscal cliff was coming. In fact, Washington politicians set it up to force themselves to seriously deal with our nation's long-term fiscal problems. Yet, even after taking the country to the brink of economic disaster... Washington still could not forge a common-sense bipartisan consensus on a plan that stabilizes the debt. So I just wanted to reiterate, we were talking uh, in an advisor meeting recently about, hey, well, we've avoided the short-term issue that was driving the market kind of crazy for the last several actual months, right? Yep. And, uh, but... If you're an investor out there, the, the message that I want to send is there will, there's always going to be things we need to work through. Um, so this is just one issue. And now it's going to be about the, the, the debt, right? And the, I think the debt ceiling issue is coming up. And they still need to work to try to get a longer-term solution to get the debt under control and the deficit. I thought that the uh, obviously the debt ceiling is one issue that's coming up. You know, that'll be um, um, the next month or two. A very hot topic in the news, but also I thought they, they, they kicked the can on these automatic spending cuts mm-hmm. that were supposed to take effect. So they have to rejigger, well, figure out what they're going to do with regards to those cuts. Otherwise, they will automatically be enforced like they were supposed to happen here in the last, uh, the most recent deadline. But I think more importantly, and what these guys are talking about too, is that they didn't, they didn't reform, uh, the uh, Social Security and or Medicare stuff, right. which is an enormous part of the, the problem in terms of the long-term sustainability, um, you know, of, of the budgets and things. So, um, I, I kind of like parts of it that, hey, they got the tax piece set. So for a long time to come, we don't have to worry about or guess what the tax rates are going to be. And you're married to different areas. Um, I, but I'm hopeful that they'll be able to dissect these things that are coming up and, and tackle them at least one on one because I, I think it would be, would have been impossible to expect sort of some sort of grand bargain that all of a sudden creates clarity in all these different areas you just mentioned, like the debt ceiling, Social Security, Medicare, uh, automatic spending cuts, plus the tax stuff going on. I mean, that's a lot of lot of uh, things to shove through in, in one vote. I would prefer, actually, to have it broken up, as long as it happens pretty quickly. Exactly. Okay, Ethan. Well, I just I wanted to talk about the 529 plans. And just to give you a brief overview, if you don't, if you're just tuning in, you haven't done a lot of research on 529. Section 529 is just a section of the tax code, but it allowed for uh, states to create um, plans for for parents, or in this case, anyone can contribute to these plans, for for education purposes. Uh, So typically, you would invest for a child that you would put open these accounts for on behalf of a child that you would like to use for higher education. And if it is used for qualified expenses, then those that the growth that you uh, have accumulated in the plan over the years, so you had a newborn baby and you didn't start withdrawing until they maybe they were eighteen, started going to college for example, you'd have eighteen years of growth if you did a good job investing and the market worked to your favor. Uh that's potentially a lot of growth that could avoid taxation. Also 
gifts into these plans are removed from the estate of whoever's making those gifts. So, typically, the gifting rules, and I think they stayed the same, is it 13,000? 14,000 for, what, what is it, Ethan, for this year? I uh, know for 2012 it was, uh, 2000, it was 13,000. 13, that you could gift, if you were parents, you could each gift that to someone. So it would be 26,000, for example, mm-hmm. um, without having to worry about any estate or gift tax issues. So you can sock away a pretty good amount into these 529 college savings plans and have some tax benefit, both on income tax benefit, but also on um, estate tax benefit. They also have a unique um, aspect to them, which is um, you know you can invest them in, in as aggressive or conservative as you would like. So typically, prepaid tuition programs might be tied to some tuition rate increase that occurs over time, uh, and that becomes your investment return in essence, where within these plans you can kind of pick different typically mutual funds mm-hmm. and how, how aggressive you want to be. So there's an article here in, in that uh, was passed to me where five to nine plans are fa- are failing by Karen Blumenthal and the, this was in the Wall Street Journal and there's 160 billion by the way in these plans um, now wow. Ethan, which is pretty good. I mean they've started what within the last 10, 15 years? Yep. Sounds like I think so. Um, and some of the issues, I won't read verbatim here, but um, is about disclosure. They're not really required to make the, the, the state-run plans, haven't been required to give the kind of disclosure that other types of plans, like say a retirement plan or other things would have to give. And so it's just a little bit more difficult to get information, basic information about the fund manager's performance, performance of, say, the age-based options, which are kind of a set-it-and-forget-it option where mm-hmm. they pick a handful of funds for you and they automatically adjust the level uh, of equity investment to be less and less and more and more conservative, less equity, more conservative as you get near the age that the, the miner would likely use the funds. Um, but they don't really put a lot of standardization around benchmarking, so how did these things do relative to the benchmarks? Um, or other relevant things. So she kind of talks about that, that, hey, you know, that some ways they could be more transparent or if they included the investment performance against the appropriate benchmark, uh, less than 20% are doing that of the funds out there. Mm. Um, daily prices, so most of them are not reporting and updating their values, like say to a database like Morningstar on a daily basis. It uh, might be monthly or, or quarterly at best. Uh, give more information on the age-based options, uh, and that just means understanding what the returns are. Not uh, for the for the con- the group of funds in those age-based. So it's been difficult. You have to dig through and kind of run the numbers yourself in a lot of these. Right. For each fund that's made up uh, it, that makes up the age-based option, and uh, you know, providing information on assets. So um, just how much. And what is inside of, of the different funds. So one of the things we've done that I would invite you to, to contact us to, to access is, uh, we've built a pretty powerful, um, calculator that enables you to, we've looked at a lot of the different plans out there and some of the criteria that we use are things like, are there costs to set it up? Can you set it up with a relatively low minimum? Uh, are the funds 
we want to use funds that are very high quality, of the highest quality in the industry within the plans, but have the lowest expenses relative to their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to favor, particularly in, in preset plans, we have limited groups of choices. And in often cases, the traditional uh, funds, this has been the problem in the 401k side of things, Ethan, is that the funds that they use are not necessarily great funds. It's They happen to be very expensive funds, which go to the advisor who is uh, advising on the plan would get a higher compensation for putting those funds into the plan. So a 529 plan that's consistent of very expensive, actively managed funds would not be our choice. Um, Furthermore, it's when you, you know, if you really get deep into how really smart money manages uh, their investments, they like to invest over a broad group of asset classes. Um, Not typically what is offered in a lot of plans. So where we would like to have U.S. stocks that are large, small, growth and value, for example, separating along those lines, um, real estate or REITs, and then look into developed international in the same way and, and emerging markets, and all the way down in all the you mm-hmm. know, list of viable, valid asset classes. Uh, you don't always get those choices. So in reality, we've also created a CACO that would enable you to invest among a couple of different plans to get all the investment asset classes that we think are uh, exciting to own. So we haven't found one plan yet that has every investment asset class that we do invest in, in um, say, an individual account that we have literally thousands of choices that will narrow down to maybe 20 or 30 investments, Ethan, that are diversified, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, that's difficult. So we've brought that down to say, well, there's no limit on how many plans you can have. It's really about what you contribute each year. Right. Um, so if that is something that you are interested in, it's kind of hard to cover in the, in the radio program here, but please contact us throughout the week, and you can email myself, ksmith, at empirical.net, or you can give us a call, 1-800-923-4307. Ask for Ken or Ethan, and uh, we'll get you connected to one of our advisors, at the very least. And be happy to share a little information with you about the 529 plans and some of the research we did, because I think the article point is there isn't a lot of good data out there if you're going directly um, to websites about it. The other thing you can do is, is to pull down the uh, disclosures directly, get the disclosure documents for each plan, um, and go through those, but um, we could probably save you some time <laughs> sure. and, and give you a little advice on how to get through that. Well, Ethan, we don't have a lot of time. We only have a minute left. Oh, all right. Um, and I, I, I don't know what kind of a market review we can do other than I, I wanted to just, to just point out that um, it wound up being a, a situation where our global average, globally diversified equity portfolio mm-hmm. Uh, did something in excess of, of 18% for the year. Um, and as we've been saying the last few weeks, unless, and we were saying, unless something drastic happens here, uh, we're going to have a pretty good year. 18.24 for kind of a neutrally weighted, reasonably average weighted, um, globally diversified portfolio. It beat just owning a U.S. large cap portfolio for 2012. Uh, not that U.S. large cap did too shabby either. 
Ethan. So mm-hmm. I, I think the uh, S&P did something close to 17%, between 16 and 17% for the year. Do you have different data there? Uh, I thought it was a little less than that, but I mean, definitely in the teens, mid-teens, I'd say. The teenies, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm looking right on the site here. Um, but yeah. anyway, uh, didn't do too shabby. No doubt. At, at, at any rate. And uh, maybe next week we can go through um, yeah, great, great a, detail. a little more detail. But I, I think you know what I was going to draw up that we've been talking about is how surprising that was. And a lot of hedge fund managers thought that they were going to outsmart the market and sat in cash for a good deal. Because everybody was a negative Nelly, mm-hmm. and um, the so-called you know, smart money—if that's what we want to call that—and there, uh, that did not pan out, and the market ultimately did pretty well. A 19 percent, uh, 18, 19 percent return in one year for an equity portfolio that's yeah. diversified among thousands of stocks is not bad. I'll take that. Yeah, there were there were lots and lots of dire predictions out there for 2012, and it doesn't look like any of them came true. Well, we'll talk more about that next week. Thanks for tuning in to Empirical Investing Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll be back again same time, same place next week. Sounds good. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week.